as we're continuing our series through Acts, we're almost done, actually, just a few chapters away. So I'd ask that you turn in your Bibles to Acts 27. We're going to have to hit this in two parts. Uh, The question I want to start with is, do people heed the warning of God's messengers? Do people heed the warning of God's messengers? And I'm not talking about the phony, self-aggrandizing false prophets who speak on their own, own behalf only, but those whose message and conduct reveal that they are genuine servants of the Lord and are speaking on his behalf. Paul is one of these servants, and as a good Christian soldier of Jesus Christ and a rather seasoned maritime traveler, he warns the Roman centurion Julius and the captain and owner of the ship that they will suffer loss if they press on during this season uh, regarding the sea, the dangerous nature of the sea ahead of them. Luke is the one writing here, and if you look in verse 9, he states, Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the fast. So Paul goes to speak to those in charge of this voyage and tells them uh, not to press on. But who is Paul to them? He's a Christian? Well, what is that to us? No, Paul, you're a man like we are. Even more so, you're a prisoner awaiting trial in Caesar's court. What do you know? Right? What do you know? In the eyes of the world, what do Christians know, especially when there are so many different versions of Christianity, creating a sea of confusion today for those who are trying to navigate through the cares and challenges of this life? This is why it's so important, and I would reinforce this over and over again, it's so important to proclaim the biblical gospel, what the Bible says about itself as God's word instead of what we want to personally impose upon the text. This process of observation requires discernment, of course, rather than speculation on our part. It is the difference between the Apostle Paul's discerning look at the sea and the season, the times that they're they're facing and that they're entering into and, and saying it's better to wait that discernment versus the speculation of, of the centurion and the captain and the owner of the ship thinking that we can just press on anyway, disregarding the trouble that lays ahead. Beside, we have lost too much time as it is. Does that kind of thinking sound familiar these days? Yet would it not be better to lose a little more time, if you will, waiting upon the Lord's provision rather than lose your life vainly throwing caution to the wind? One would think that most people will look for shelter when a storm is bearing down on them, especially one with the power of a tornado or, or a hurricane force winds when they come bearing down upon you. I, I like to believe that even the most bravest person would look for some type of shelter in the midst of that type of storm, facing that kind of power. Yet as terrible as this type of storm may be, it gives us the metaphor for God's great power in judgment. 
And who can escape the judgment of God? The storms put forth by this world are insignificant compared to the wrath of God that is to come. Yet worldly wise thinkers press on anticipating that they can simply handle whatever comes their way because you know, what do Christians know? The flood story is just a story in which God's wrath was poured out upon the earth. It's just a mythical story. After all, should this God's wrath come, we will just find a way to overcome through science and technology, right? For you who believe in Jesus Christ, and even for you who do not yet believe but seek deeper understanding regarding your existence, why you're here in this world, why you exist at all, what your purpose is, I want you to have this perspective in your mind before we even read this passage in Acts 27. I want you to turn first in your Bibles to Matthew 8. Very similar situation. Matthew 8, verse 22, following. not going to read it, but I'm going to describe it to you as I think you're very familiar with this text. In Matthew 8:22, following the Apostle Matthew records a scene where he and the other disciples and Jesus are out on the Sea of Galilee. And while they're out there in the boat, this nasty storm with gale force winds comes down over the mountain and into the Sea of Galilee and it, and it starts you know, bashing against the boat. It's almost like a predator trying to consume its prey. And Peter and the other disciples, many who are seasoned fishermen, are fighting against this, these wind, the wind and the waves, trying to stay afloat. And they're losing ground. And I want you to see that there is only one person in that boat, one person who is unafraid. Do you know who that is? Jesus. There's only one person who is unafraid, and he is Jesus. I want you to see this. It's in the midst of, a, of this terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee. The only one who is unafraid is Jesus. There's only one being, beloved, in all of existence who has no fear. That is God. There's only one being who has no fear at all, and that is God. What about Satan and the demons? Well, James 2 verse 19 says, You believe that there is one God good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. Shudder is another word for terror. They're terrified of God. Their faith is in not, not in God. They are enemies against God, but they know the power of God and they fear Him. He does not fear them. Out of fear here, these disciples were trying to keep the boat afloat amidst the winds and the waves of this severe storm because He obviously did not have power over the wind to make it stop. So they had to continually fight against it, trying to save themselves. And there was a complete dread that fell upon them that they were going to drown. Everyone in that boat was going to drown. Jesus responds as Peter tells him to wake up. You know, we're going to die here. Save us. 
Jesus wakes up, and what does he say? You of little faith, why are you what? Why are you so afraid? Well, they were fighting with all their strength to keep the boat afloat, and they were losing the battle, and they knew it. That's why they were afraid. Their understanding was that the boat and everyone on it was going down, so let me phrase Jesus' question a little differently. Why are you so afraid of the power of creation when your creator is right here with you? Why are you so afraid of the power of creation when your creator is right here with you? What is, what is Jesus' name? Emmanuel? What does that mean? God with us. He is God with us. This is why Jesus rebukes them. And he's saying, where are you looking for shelter in this storm? The boat? Your efforts? Are you looking to man or God? This is why Jesus rebukes them for having such little faith in him. Who is God with us? He is the creator who has power over the creation. Is he the Lord Jesus, not the ultimate shelter in the time of storm? Will you contend with the forces that are greater than you are on your own, or will you place your faith in God to provide for you and protect you? This is the perspective I want you to reflect upon, which is that Jesus, not the boat or anything constructed by man or the efforts of mankind, but Christ Jesus is your true shelter in the time of, sp- of storm as he speaks to the wind as its creator and the wind obeys his command and all is calm. Now let's look at Acts 27 verses 13 through 44. Paul had warned them not to go on. Verse 13 says, When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, you remember a lee is the protected side of the island. We were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. 
then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the, of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was only 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern, the back of the boat, and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in the front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and, all, and at the same time uh, untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could, who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely, even as the Lord told Paul that they would. Let's pray together. Father, for the balance of this message, instruct our hearts and apply your truth to us. Help us to take courage in that you are our salvation. You are our fortress. Speak through me, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the voyage at this point starts off with a gentle breeze. I've been on enough fishing trips out in the Pacific Ocean to know that some fishing trips start out with a gentle breeze, and it's wonderful. The boat rocks a little bit. There are small waves, 
and it just seems like there's no big deal. And then you hear a call on the radio as the captain turns the boat around and says, we're going to have to cut this short and get back to, back to the harbor. And we're like, what? we've got two hours. We paid for two. I'm a Dutchman, you know. We paid for two more hours of fishing. We're staying out here. No, you're not staying out here. I'm the captain. We're going to go back. And as we're going back, the storm catches up with you. And from, from two to three foot waves on the ocean, they go to 10 to 11 foot waves. And you're all over the place, turning all different shades of green, blue, purple, pink, whatever. And, and your, whatever lunch you had, you no longer have. And you're thankful that you're heading to dry land, someplace that's stable, instead of being out there amidst, uh, amongst the turbulent seas. So we have now this gentle south wind, emphasizing gentle. <laughs> south wind starting to blow, and the captain and the... And the and his, his, uh, his mates are saying, see, uh, we waited a few days. Now we have what we want. We've got that gentle south wind that's going to direct us right where we want to go. Uh, it's time to press on. Weigh the anchor, you know, pull it up. Put the sails down. Let's go. So off they go, heading towards Rome. Isn't this how the short take goes as we place our confidence in our own understanding? instead of seeking to follow God's counsel through his word. We put our faith in our own speculations as the best course for action for our country, sometimes for our community, and even for our churches, rather than striving to rightly understand God's counsel for us through his holy word, through his servants. So how do you know we are on the right course because our solution addresses our immediate need. Well, what will be the effect down the road, even on follow, following generations? Who cares about that? We just need to deal with the matter at hand. Although the matter at hand can be very important indeed. This is the philosophy of the eat, drink, and be merry crowd. For tomorrow you die. What is the mentality of that crowd? It's you use your gifts and abilities and talents to get all you can out of this world before you die. Regardless of who you harm or take advantage of, that doesn't matter. It's all that you can get for yourself before you die because when you die, it's all over with. There's nothing beyond death. There's no one in control who you're going to have to face after the death, as the Bible says, there is one, it's appointed a man once to die, then the judgment. They don't believe the judgment exists. They don't believe that God is in control. They believe that they are. They are the ones who will establish their own destiny and forge out their own path. So they live life according to what they see fit, regardless of how it harms or destroys others and God's creation. In the process. But this view totally overlooks the reality of who is in charge. I, I, th I was thinking about this and just the idea that we are on this little speck of dust called earth <laughs> in the midst of a vast universe orbiting a star which produces more energy in one second than all the energy mankind has ever used or produced throughout human history. We're floating around this giant energy ball <clears throat> that has that much power. And I'm sometimes amazed that we're still alive. You know, 
all that power at the center of our solar system. And we're in such a frail balance with it. And yet we're still alive. This earth has been sailing around the sun on relatively calm seas, if you will. According to NASA, the biggest solar flare since recording them happened on April 2nd, 2001. The solar flare explosion hurled plasma and electromagnetic radiation from the sun's surface into space at the speed of around 4.5 million miles per hour. That's a little bit faster than my motorcycle goes. (laughs) It was just our luck, scientists say, that this powerful solar flare wasn't directed at the Earth. Yeah, right, lucky, wasn't it? If it had been directed towards this Earth, it would have generated a solar storm wherein the electromagnetic radiation ejected from the sun's surface would travel through space and eventually interact with the magnetism of the Earth, likely knocking out uh, all electronic communications and satellite arrays. To what extent it would do this, who knows? The larger the storm, the more we are thrown into disarray. As we are influenced by the forces around us far more than we influence them. This is extremely evident. With a short joyride turned fast and furious <laughs> in a short period of time here in Acts 27. Verse 14, if you look there, it says a, a wind of hurricane force swept over the island of Crete so that the that even the protected side of the island was no longer protected. The lee of the island was the protected side, and this this wind was so powerful that it was just flying over the island onto the other side, so there was no protection anymore. You're now at the total mercy of this storm. So you can't head into a wind like that on a ship with sails, so they had to give way and were driven along. They received a small opportunity on the protected side of an island called Cauda, about 23 miles west from their starting point, to to bring the lifeboat onto the ship and secure it. And they also passed cables or ropes under the ship because they were afraid that if they hit a sandbar, and you, you, you know, we've read through the scripture as far as what happened to the boat in the end, they thought they were going to do this out in the deeper ocean. And the boat was going to break to pieces. So they were literally, they put ropes or cables around the ship, fastened them up top to try and hold the boat together so that it wouldn't break to pieces from this pounding that they were receiving from this storm. Even if they run aground, they would hopefully hold the boat together. So despite uh, the desperate measures that were being taken, they are not gaining any ground in this storm. And desperate measures are being taken. Your livelihood, all the cargo that you're bringing to sell so that you can gain a profit, it's thrown overboard. They put an anchor down to try and slow their progress in the aft. The next day after that, they take the ship's instruments by which you navigate. They're taking anything and everything. The only thing they left was a little bit of food, a little bit of wheat, Otherwise, they're throwing everything overboard to make the ship more buoyant with the hope that they will survive. They're at the point now where they have done everything they know of to try to survive, and yet it was not enough. 
And I was thinking about how that relates to the storms in life for us. When you do everything you can and it's not enough, you're still on the path of diminishing return. It may be an illness that has taken hold of you and you fought it and fought it and fought it and yet you're not winning the battle. And eventually you know you're going to lose it. It can be the infirmity of age where you notice that your, your body's strength is waning and you're fighting the good fight, you're pressing on, but you know that you're losing the battle. And there can come that point where it becomes rather hopeless that you're going to return to any former strength or that you're going to recover. And it's that point in time when, you, when you're looking at that and, and your perspective is this, this is hopeless. And what hope do you have beyond that? You're trying to press on, but your strength is waning. You find yourself in that position where you are starting to give up hope that you can overcome. And that's the mindset of everyone on board this ship in Acts 27. Verse 20 says, this is Luke looking in, back in hindsight. He says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. We gave up all hope of being saved. This includes Luke, Paul, and Aristarchus, the three Christians on board. But is that the end of the story? No. Praise God, it's not. In the midst of hopelessness, God sends an angel to visit Paul and lets him know that God in his grace is going to save Paul and everyone on board. It reminds me of that, that, that verse from a song that we sing around Christmas time. I think the song is called, O Holy Night. And the verse goes, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Pining means that you're wasting away. It's the whole point of diminishing returns that you're going to die someday without any Savior, without any salvation and have to stand before a holy God. The the world is pining away under the power of sin, flesh, and the devil till, until He, Jesus, appeared and the soul felt its worth, its value before the Lord. It knew God's love in a new and profound way. A thrill of hope, this weary world that has been beaten down by these elements, by sin, death, and the devil. This weary world rejoices now, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices, the messengers of God. Oh, night divine, oh, night when Christ our Savior was born. Whatever the storm is in your life, in whom must you place your hope, your faith? You must place your faith in the living Word of God, who is Jesus Christ. He is your salvation. So Paul says this to the crew. He speaks to the crew. He says, and I I don't want you to picture Paul getting up here at a lectern like this and giving them a lecture 
They're in the midst of a raging storm, the boats being tossed all around. He's trying to get his footing to walk up to a point where he can address the crew and he's hanging on to a mast or a solid piece of the ship so he doesn't get knocked into the ocean. And he says, men, you should have taken my advice. You should have listened to God's servant from the beginning. Not to sail from Crete, then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God whose whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be what? Do not be what? Afraid. Do not be afraid. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who, shall, who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Hear that. I will have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Who does Paul believe is in control? God is in control. Even in the midst of this terrible trial, God is in control of his life. He is in control of the situation and he is going to save Paul and everyone on that ship. As we think of this, I have two things to ponder. We can look at the one more focus. More so today, we'll have to get to the next one next week. The first one is that God did not calm the sea. I think of a couple events where the sea was raging against God's servants and God calmed the sea. One was with Jonah, tried to escape God's command, God's, God's call to go to Nineveh. God sent the tempest, and the sailors were overwhelmed, and they, Jonah knew that they had to throw him overboard. As soon as they threw him overboard, God calmed the sea. We had talked about the one in Matthew where Jesus was on the boat with the disciples, and, and Peter cries out to him for salvation. Jesus gets up and rebukes the sea, and he calms the sea. Does God calm the sea here? He does not. So we'll address that in just a minute. The second one, and this is what I want you to think about this week as we, we go to the next week Sunday. Why is it that you need to come to the end of yourself in order to truly see that you were never in control to begin with? Why is it that you need to come to the end of yourself in order to truly see that you were never in control to begin with? God is the one who is in control. I want you to reflect on that. Now going back to the first First one, God does not calm the sea. Uh, Paul and everyone on this boat is saved in the midst of this raging storm. Please don't miss the vehicle of their salvation. The vehicle of their salvation is not the boat per se. The boat hit a sandbar and broke to pieces. The vehicle of their salvation, their shelter in the midst of the storm, is the word of God spoken through his servant. The vehicle of their salvation, I want you to hear this, is the word of God spoken through his servant. It is through the word of God that they were saved. 
14 days, two weeks, they have been in the midst of this terrible storm. And the sailors are finally sensing that they're coming up on land. They take soundings. And even though they are shrouded in darkness, they realize that their readings are getting shallower as they're, as they're pressing on. They put down the aft anchors to try to secure their position until daylight comes. Some of the sailors are fearful that even with the anchors down, that the the boat's going to be beaten to pieces. And so they want out of there. They want to try and make it for wherever this shoreline leads. And so they go up to the front of the boat and act like they're going to put some anchors down up there. And they're actually putting down the lifeboat. Paul senses it. I'm sure the Spirit prompts him. And he tells the centurion, Julius, you know, this is the word of God. Either we all uh, believe God's word, and this is essentially what he's saying to the centurion, either we all believe and heed God's word and we survive, or we don't believe God's word and we all die. Your choice. Well, it didn't take uh, Julius even a split second to call his men, go up there to the front of the boat, cut the, cut the ropes that had the lifeboat on them and let it float away. And then you look at that and you say, what's, what's happening here? What's happening in this situation? The centurion Julius, his soldiers, the captain, and owner of the ship, the sailors are all heeding the word of God. Through the apostle Paul, they are heeding the counsel of God's messenger. Paul encourages them to eat, verses 34 through 38. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After this, after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat it. The focus is on God's salvation. They're moving from fear to faith. They're believing in the word of God. They're believing that God is going to save them. That's why they ate. Do people eat when they're terrified? No, they don't. They eat when there's, when there's faith, when there's trust, when there's peace. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, they were 276 people on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the rest of the grain into the sea. And that leads to that other matter to ponder. This is what I want you to ponder as we close this message today. Why is it that you need to come to the end of yourself in order to truly see that you were never in control to begin with? God is the one who is in control and salvation comes through faith in Him. He alone is our shelter. He alone is our fortress. He alone is our salvation. Well, let's respond to the word of God this morning.